because we do live in a society where we use the term trauma loosely. Trauma is actually a specific type of stress, which I don't know if many people realize. Trauma shatters the fundamental beliefs that we've felt to be true about ourselves and our world. We once thought many, many years ago that the brain cards we were dealt with are the brain cards that we were stuck with. And we're learning more and more that that's not actually true. New experiences can actually impact our neural circuitry. The understanding that our brain is malleable and that we can be our own best neural architect is very profound. So even a traumatic event can impact our brain. Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. I'm super excited because my guest today, we've been trying to navigate this episode and we finally got it going. And I have always had an interest when it comes to trauma and the brain. So my next guest is Dr. Jen Wolken. She is a neuropsychologist, speaker, and a mental health advocate. And she's the author of the book, Quick Calm. Dr. Wolken, thank you so much for joining us. We finally did it. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. Thank you so much. Call me Jen, of course, throughout the whole thing. And thank you for having me, right? There are no timelines. There's only, you know, when things happen. And I'm glad we made this work. That's right. There's always reasons why things happen. So I have always had a big fascination with the brain and with trauma. And I know that's something that you specialize in. But I want to know a little bit about you and your background. And I always like to just get an idea of where my guests came from and how they got to where they're at now. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I'm a trained health and neuropsychologist. So basically, I'm trained to understand the relationship between the physical brain and our behaviors. And I'm also interested in how biological, psychological, and social factors interact with and affect our overall wellness. So outside of my clinical practice, I advocate towards ending mental health stigma and I guess this all feels like a call to action and a purpose that's greater than myself. And being in the collective with other extraordinary humans like yourself, I find very humbling and fulfilling. You know, I'm definitely a therapist who is training outside of a textbook. I have my own lived experience with mental health challenges. I was treated for panic disorder when I was 15. Um, I struggled through depressive episodes in my 20s and 30s. And I definitely have a particular call to action with regards to ending stigma around chronic illness. And basically, it took me 20 years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis and finally the surgery I needed. And on top of that, some other, you know, comorbid or co-occurring illnesses or challenges. And a few years ago, I actually experienced premature ovarian dysfunction. So basically perimenopause, menopause, super early. And that threw me into chronic migraine, which literally threw my life upside down and impacted my overall functioning. And, you know, that too is really stigmatized. So it's not easy living with the threat of living with so much discomfort and mental health, of course, is inevitably affected. And I guess, you know, through this, I began to learn more about trauma and the impact that chronic health challenges have 
And I just wanted to do a deeper dive into what trauma means and to, you know, understand trauma as something that's not only what society thinks it is, right? A car accident or war, not to minimize those at all. Um, but there are so many things that trauma can be. And I guess, right, because, you know, the intro, oh, I definitely want to be a human here too. And like, talk about, you know, my interests. So I'll just say I'm a writer, I'm actually getting my MFA in poetry. I don't know if you knew that we could talk about it another time, but I'm a low key folk music aficionado. And I played the guitar, but all this really to say that the creative arts, and I think most importantly, the power of different mediums of expression are important to me, both professionally and personally. And like you said, I recently published my first book. Thank you for mentioning it. And I hope to publish my second book on the psychology of chronic pain sometimes. So thank you for having me. I know that was long winded, but I really just wanted to contextualize things for everyone. I love that. We have a lot in common. And so just like you, I have endometriosis. I also have lupus. So it's for those that don't know, that's a, uh, it's a chronic autoimmune disease. And I have a lot of ovarian stuff. And I have a lot of hormone issues too. I've been on hormone therapy for like six years. And just like you, are you really? Yeah, it's it's so funny. We're gonna have to talk more about this after because even for me, when I was younger, in my teens, I had a lot of trauma, I was diagnosed with panic disorder. And then going into the military, I had other stuff. So it's interesting, because the connection with trauma and autoimmune diseases, I feel like there's a big link. And I actually wanted to talk about trauma and stress, but I'm very curious as what is the connection with autoimmune and trauma? How does that show up in the body? Because I feel like there's this huge connection with the nervous system and autoimmune. And there is some studies that are showing it, but I feel like we don't have enough of that. Yeah. And I don't, I won't do a deep dive here because I'm still getting to know the literature, but just to say that there is a burgeoning literature to show that autoimmune disease and chronic health issues, chronic illness also generally has a great impact on mind, body, brain, and is often comorbid with post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, this might be due to many, many reasons. Autoimmune disorders cause inflammation. It also is a stressor to the body. Stress causes inflammation. There's a lot of research that inflammation plays a role in mental health challenges. Pain experienced by veterans specifically, I know in general PTSD, but veterans, and I I know your military background, is actually reported as significantly worse than the pain of the public at large because of increased exposure to injury and psychological stress during combat. So that's not necessarily to say that autoimmune is associated, which, you know, there is a burgeoning research. It's just to say that it's very comorbid. And the rates of chronic pain in veteran women are actually even higher. So I guess why is this? But, you know, pain itself can be a reminder of a combat-related injury. That's not an explanation for the autoimmune. So I know I'm talking around that a little bit, but just giving some context in terms of PTSD and how it's so comorbid with chronic pain and chronic illness. And actually... Because of that, that can elicit some of the PTSD symptoms. And then I guess, you know, psychological vulnerability, right? Lack of control is common in 
in both, in both chronic pain, especially autoimmune, where you have no control over your own body, you know, fighting against itself. So basically, mm-hmm. all that to say, chronic pain, including autoimmune, and those who experience trauma, I think what characterizes both of those is that people often feel helpless in coping with the perceived unpredictability, right, of the physical and psychological sensations that arise in that. So when we're talking about trauma, and a lot of people have a hard time distinguishing what is trauma and what is stress, because trauma is subjective, right? Trauma is going to be different for everybody. There's no one size fits all for trauma. But what is the difference between something that might be traumatic for someone versus something that's stressful for somebody, especially when it comes to how our brain is processing things and how we perceive it? Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. I think that's such a great question. It's such an on-point question because we do live in a society where we use the term trauma loosely. And, you know, I, I'm very supportive of someone who believes that they've experienced trauma in validating that. And I also think, right, as psychologists, as neuropsychologists, it's important to just sort of talk about it in a more precise way for greater understanding more precise, right, diagnosis, and most importantly, treatment. And I guess there's so much I can say here, but I'll just start with this and then we can rant and I'd love to hear your thoughts too. But I would say stress is something that we we all face, right? It comes in many forms. It differs across contexts. It could be work-related. It could be financial-related. It could be social-related. It could be in response to a new life change, etc. So some stressors are minor or short-term and others might be chronic. Trauma is actually a specific type of stress, which I don't know if many people realize, right? So we actually, trauma is called more technically traumatic stress. So it's an actual type of stress that reflects an exposure to an event, right? Egregious, heinous event that's generally outside the range of just a daily human experience. I think the reason that it's important to distinguish that is because traumatic stress is the stress that can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. That's not to say that chronic stress isn't something to heed and to deal with, because actually, (laughs) ironically, so many of the neural correlates of chronic stress, repeated stress over time, are consistent with a brain which has experienced trauma, right? So I find that like mind blowing. Um, So -hmm. basically trauma always causes stress. Stress on its own doesn't always lead to trauma. And I feel like that's an important thing to discern. They often go hand in hand. And, but like I said, chronic stress can and does often exist without being traumatic. And I guess to get a little bit more poetic, one of the main differences that I believe separates chronic stress and trauma, and actually wrote about this on Instagram or one of the platforms, is that I think trauma 
shatters the fundamental beliefs that we've felt to be true about ourselves and our world, right? So like it's mm-hmm. trauma and not stress that crumbles our assumption that people are good or the world is safe or I am safe. And I'll always have some more to say, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts in response to that. And I'm happy to rent more. No, that's great. I think that's really spot on. I I love the analogy because that's very true, especially when it comes to trauma, even let's say PTSD, it really shifts the way that we view the world and how we feel in it. Viewing the world as this is no longer a safe place, even though you may now be in a safe environment, a safe place. The nervous system and the brain is pretty much saying like, no, you're not. And that fight or flight system is kind of still on. And it's not knowing how to turn that off versus when you're stressed, you kind of know you're stressed. You can maybe do things to de-stress. You can kind of get back to that baseline. So I love that analogy. Now let's talk about maybe trauma and the brain. So what is actually happening when we're exposed to a traumatic event? So let's just say we we are having a traumatic event, something happens, what is happening inside the brain? What's happening to us? And how does that manifest? One of the ways I want to tackle this is to first talk about neuroplasticity, right? Yes, and I neuroplast- love neuroplasticity. <laughs> and neuroplasticity, yes, I love it. It's One of the most empowering concepts, I talk about it all the time, I think it's so hopeful. Basically, neuroplasticity is the understanding that our brain is malleable, right? We once thought many, many years ago that the brain cards we were dealt with are the brain cards that we were stuck with. And we're learning more and more that that's not actually true, right? New experiences can actually impact on neural circuitry. And I remember that I first learned this from one of my favorite books. And it's worth mentioning, right? Because I always want to give credit where credit is due. Um, I don't know if you've read it, Norman Doidge, and he wrote The Brain That Changes Itself. And that just changed my life. And the understanding that our brain is malleable, and that we can be our own best neural architects is very profound and empowering. Here's the thing, though. And why I started with neuroplasticity. Most of us view the notion of neuroplasticity through rose-colored glasses, right? So, wow, neuroplasticity, new learning, new experiences can impact and change our brain. And yes, that's true. However, neuroplasticity affords the brain an opportunity to heal from injury and it also can negatively change someone's neuro profile. Mm-hmm. That means that neuroplasticity goes any which way. So even a traumatic event can impact our brain. Even trauma will impact our wiring. And I guess that the way to start off talking about trauma and the brain is to talk about three brain structures. And of course, there are more, but just to keep it like a little bit more simple and digestible. When we speak about trauma in the brain, we speak about the amygdala, we speak about the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. And the amygdala is a structure in the brain's limbic system, right? The amygdala is the fear center of the brain. And right, that helps us determine whether or not a threat is approaching. And if one is, it sends out a danger signal, right? Like an alarm, right? And that it sets off the cascade of hormones, et cetera, et cetera, that we need in order 
for the fight or flight response to be initiated. And the thing about the amygdala is that it also helps us indicate when the threat is gone. When one has experienced trauma, the amygdala remains hyper alert to even non-threatening stimuli. And what happens is, and you, you totally hit the nail on the head and mentioned this before, is that our fight or flight response is continuously activated despite being safe. And or especially with PTSD, which is again, post-traumatic stress disorder, the amygdala can get really caught up in a highly alert and activated loop where it looks and stands for threats everywhere, which is why I also sometimes say that, you know, those who've experienced trauma have a hard time differentiating between a butterfly and like a wasp. What I was going to say, right, why I paused is that it also has a hard time understanding calm because even in calm, it looks for threats, right? And that, I guess the butterfly and the, the wasp was just a metaphor to understand that, that it's hard for a trauma survivor, someone who's experienced trauma, someone who's experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder to sit in calm because they're always on high alert. And that's where we get the concept of hypervigilance. That's one of the criteria to be met to be diagnosed technically with a post-traumatic stress disorder. So here's what happens is, and tell me, can I, should I continue my rant? I guess yeah, so- I'm so intrigued. Please, please. <laughs> the hyperactive amygdala is like constantly interacting with the hippocampus and the hippocampus is the area of the brain that plays a role in memory, memory function. And brain scans have actually found smaller hippocampi, yeah, smaller hippocampi, I think that's how you say it, in those with post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, that perhaps reflects the impaired memory experience that's inherent post-traumatically. And Usually the hippocampus works to connect and organize different aspects of memory and responsible for locating the memory of an event in proper time, in proper place, in proper context. And when experiencing PTSD, and I know I've done a lot of interchanging between trauma and PTSD, and we can get to that after, but for, for, you know, for the purposes of this, it doesn't matter. When experiencing PTSD, memory becomes fragmented. And this is why, right? People talk about fragmented memory, and this is literally the neural correlate of why that happens, right? So the hippocampus, which becomes smaller, has trouble coherently piecing together memory. And also, which I think is profound, um, it also has trouble discriminating past from present and then integrating memory of experiences with feelings and factual knowledge. And... That's the hippocampus's role in in trauma. And this is a really distressing component of post-traumatic stress disorder. Again, if we're being very technical and using the term post-traumatic stress disorder, because this neural correlate, the hippocampus shrinking in response to traumatic event, manifests in the form of intrusive memories and flashbacks. And It becomes a loop because triggering memories then provoke the amygdala, and then that maintains its hyperactivity. 
For sure. Yeah. And I have a lot of vets who listen to this podcast too. And I think it's important for those that are listening as well that, you know, when we're talking about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of people automatically think that that's just related to military, that it's just related to combat. But in fact, this is related to anything that's traumatic for the individual. You know, there's there's no set textbook. Well, we do have a textbook that shows the criteria, but there's no set textbook to say what's traumatic and what's not, right? It's It's depending on how you go through trauma and how you receive it. I love the way you are so validating and holding in your community and I'm just grateful for all who's lis- who are listening. Um, and but so we talked about the amygdala, we talked about the hippocampus, and we talked about the hippocampus and amygdala and the cycle that it, you know, how they work together to perpetuate this cycle. And there's another area of the brain affected by trauma, and that's the frontal lobe, or specifically the prefrontal cortex, and that's the area of the brain that's involved in emotion regulation, in regulating behaviors, impulses, etc. It's also the part of the brain that's associated with higher order function. It's our human part of the brain, right? The cortex. It's literally what makes us human. It's the part where we get to um, distinguish between, you know, someone's facial features and what they mean. It's the part that helps us with working memory and executive function. But the neuropsychologist in me is getting lost. Basically, in those with post-traumatic stress disorder or those who've experienced trauma, the prefrontal cortex is notably less active and less able to override the amygdala and the hippocampus. So it's less able to override the signal of the amygdala to tell it, nope, the danger is not real. And it's less able to override the hippocampus as it like flashes fragments of memory. It's not able to say, no, actually, you know, that memory um, happened then and we're currently in now, right? Because our limbic part of the brain or subcortical regions, um, which not the cortex, right? The relay from our senses to that area is faster than the frontal lobe because we need to in a stressful situation, like I'm talking about years and years and years ago when there were saber-toothed tigers, mm-hmm. we couldn't think, you know, should I run away from this saber-toothed tiger? Hmm, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a good idea. So basically, that just gives context as to why the amygdala and hippocampus, it becomes hard to override them at baseline and then imagine the prefrontal cortex is working less efficiently. It's like a survival tactic. Yes. And if we don't have that frontal cortex to work with, um, we're just going to be stuck in past, you know, the past and not be able to differentiate it between the present and that fight or flight response. And we're just going to be this like on fire, literally. On a, and, and the amygdala is going to send out this five fire alarm when there really isn't one or there was one and there isn't any more. And basically, yeah, the neuroplastic brain responds to trauma. And right, so like I said, certain parts of the brain are hyperactive, right, like the amygdala, and others are more deregulated, right, like the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and that just throws off this fine tuning and like exquisite orchestration that I think usually keeps someone safe from real threats. And because of all this, like PTSD is cultivated, right? Because of the post-traumatic neural implications 
it's a breeding ground for PTSD and actually other things, anxiety, depression, dissociative disorders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. Because I think too, I love how you tied in even how our ancestors were in a survival mode. It's that fight or flight, right? And that has stayed with us to, you know, really, if you think of like the history of the earth, I mean, us as a human species, we're babies, right? And, but some of this Mm -hmm. stuff carries through in our DNA and it really does transfer down from generation to generation in terms of what we need to do to survive. Because at the end of the day, even though we're in this modern society, we still, our brains still operate as survival mode. We haven't been able to even catch up with technology. But I want to talk about childhood because I think that too, trauma is something that's very distinct and shapes who we are you know, from when we're children, especially our environment that we grow up, the way that our parents are, the way that we are taught, that really affects us as adults. So if you are somebody who maybe has dealt with trauma as a child, or someone has a parent that causes a lot of trauma as a child, how does this present in adulthood? What does this look like? You know, I guess that's such a loaded question. It's a great question, but such a loaded question, because there's no one answer, right? Because Everyone has such a unique framework, lens, circuitry, um, family of origin, right? Specific trauma that's happening. And so it's hard to say like, oh, what's going to happen if this to Mm -hmm. this, if this happens to you or this happens to you? I will say this, right? There is research to say that a child who experiences trauma is more likely, right? It's actually considered an adverse childhood event. You're more at risk for developing mental health challenges because your brain is being wired at its most malleable stage, right? It's most neuroplastic in childhood. And because of that, whatever you're experiencing, you're literally absorbing it like a sponge. And so if your earliest experiences are traumatic, that is going to impact you. You know, I think there's even a a new term and I don't know much about like the research, but I heard a new term thrown around and that is neurodevelopmental trauma, just to like sort of name and give an understanding to the fact that this is very real and adverse childhood events really impact the brain of a developing child. But again, just, you know, in a very general way, right? It depends. So a person who grows up unable to depend on anyone, right? Becomes the adult who is overly dependent or, right? They're the old souls, people say, right? The resilient ones, right? Because they had to become these things. Um, because <laughs> they right? The wise beyond your years ones, right? Like mm-hmm. they, you had to, they had to become these things because you couldn't depend on anyone, right? So, for those whose needs didn't matter, right? Because there are a lot of kids who just their needs weren't in, even taken into account. And that not, by the way, wasn't necessarily manipulative. It might have been because their parents went through trauma and didn't know how to take care of their own needs, no less their progeny. So for those whose That's needs right. weren't met, right, maybe they grew up feeling not worthy of having needs right? Or maybe they grow up as an adult who can't make choices, which is why I actually think that being able to give a trauma survivor the ability to make a choice 
can be really healing and super empowering. But let's say someone was raised in a in a home where they were held accountable for everyone else's emotions, right? Um, I know this was my mom's experience as the daughter of Holocaust survivors. And she grew up as an adult who feels like she needs to control everyone's mood. Not really control, but she needs to make sure everyone is okay, right? As if everyone's moods are contingent on her and and the way she feels. And, right, like a kid who says, who had to say yes, right, or all the time and grin and bear it, or literally tiptoe into a room becomes an adult who people pleases and so on and so forth. So like for you, yeah. your your mom, you said was a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. My, my mom was the daughter of two immigrants, both mm-hmm. from, and I've talked about this on my past episodes, but my grandfather's from Palestine and my grandmother is Brazilian. So you have a very Muslim and a very Catholic divide, mm-hmm. right? And so my mom has a lot of trauma from when her mom passed away and then she had to live with that side of the family. And so she went through her own stuff. And so lots of personality disorder stuff going on on my mom's side that how that manifested with me was the control, was the abuse, was all of these things that where my needs were not met. And I became this teenager who rebelled. I became very sexually promiscuous because I was trying to get my needs met with men, with Mm-hmm. boys, men older than me. I mean, I had a lot of trauma from my teenage years and it took me a long time to get through and process a lot of these things. And even as someone now as an adult, I'm 36 mm-hmm. years old, I'm very self-aware, mm-hmm. but how this looks like with me now is I'm a perfectionist. So now I have to constantly go overboard with burnout and I'm doing a million things and I almost don't know how to stop because if I don't do it, I feel like my world is going to collapse. There's no one there to pick it up. There's no one that's going to be there for me. There's no one that's going to pick up the pieces. It's a survival mode for me. Even though it benefits me, it's provided me the life that I have, but at the expense sometimes of my health. I've talked about I have autoimmune, I've had other health issues, but in, it's all related to how I viewed the world and how I grew up. So I feel like it manifested with how I look at my personality traits, how maybe even yeah. the brain. And that's why I'm so fascinated with neuroplasticity yeah. and the brain's ability to change and be so fluid. So talking about neuroplasticity, I kind of want to go back yeah. So somebody that goes through trauma, so we talk about neuroplasticity that can change the brain in a good way. When someone's trying to heal from trauma, how does that happen? Where does someone start and what are some of the modalities that they can do to yeah. start to heal? Yeah. And that's a great question because, right, we do this, right, you and I, we first of all, thank you so much for being vulnerable and, um, you know, for... In, for the sake of people hearing your truth and knowing that it's not something to be ashamed about and that someone as high functioning as yourself here doing a podcast um, has lived experience with exactly what we're talking about. And I think this these conversations is how stigma goes away. And when stigma goes That's away, right. there's more access to treatment. And I truly truly appreciate that. And there, I mean, there's so much more I want to talk about with you and we can do a whole nother podcast. (laughs) But yeah. But the purpose of this, of course, is to understand this so that we can eventually heal. So first of all, I want to say that I think healing is very possible. Um, 
I always like to say that we can rewire our brain for wellness, right? And people say, why do you say rewire? Why not wire for wellness? And now we know why, because um, so many of us have had this experience where our brains have been already rewired through trauma. And now we want to claim it. We want to reclaim it back. We want our amygdala to soften and, you know, decrease in volume to get smaller so that it's not going off like a five fire, you know, five fire alarm system. We want to get that hippocampus to be a little bit bigger and more robust, right? So that memories and access to memories and our understanding of ourself isn't fragmented. And we want to get that frontal cortex back online because we need that to think logically. And we also want the amygdala and the frontal cortex to talk more. So I believe it's possible. And it's hard to quantify. It's not like, oh, now I'm not healed. Now I'm healed, which I think why it's so blurried for so many people. And to that, I want to say that it's a process. Healing is a process, right? You don't go from zero to 100 or 100 to zero, whichever how you're looking at it. It really is a process that ebbs and flows. It's nonlinear. And over time, we will start to notice it in the way we're showing up for ourselves, for the people around us, the way we react or um, respond within relationships and the way we approach our relationships. And it will start to maybe take a back seat. So um, it won't be in the driver's seat of our lives. And we'll start to notice that. It won't inform our decisions. It will, won't impair our overall functioning. We'll have a broader, more robust life. It won't be as narrow. Okay, so I guess treatment, of course, depends on so many things, like the severity and associated comorbidity, right? So for example, um, chronic pain, right? Traumatic brain injury, substance use. But that being said, there are a number of therapeutic techniques that are implicated in treatment for PTSD. And I want to preface all of this by saying that it's best when trauma therapy is done through a trauma-informed lens, right? That no matter what, the utmost importance (laughs) is placed on creating safe, non-judgmental space for someone where we don't force them to forgive their perpetrator or to recall events, all the events, especially all at once, right? And we just have to make sure to pace it. Right. I know there's people want to heal, you know, quickly. And as clinicians, of course, we want that for you. We want we could we would wave magic wands. Truly, truly. And uh, if we could and we can't. However, I think slowly, safely, in a paced manner is most efficient for the long term. And we don't want to re-trigger. Right. We want to create that safe space without with as as little re-triggering as possible. And we want to give you those skills to be able to deal with any triggers and any like ebbs, you know, that happen in the treatment. Because I think sometimes actually the treatment can be more difficult than the trauma itself. And I know that's That's an unpopular thing to say. However, what, what I mean by that is so many of us have developed coping mechanisms, which are used to numb our experience And also the trauma itself, 
right? When we were, if we think about what happened, right? We shut down. We often don't remember. And it's not until healing do we realize, oh shit, that was trauma. And ooh, it doesn't feel so good. And so that we start to feel it most profoundly when we start to heal. And I want to say that with the, uh, the right therapist, with a trauma-informed guide, you will navigate that. They will help give you the tools to deal with the discomfort. So that's one spiel. <laughs> My next is that I believe that we can only heal from trauma through multiple modalities that include top-down and bottom-up therapies. And what I mean by that is Top-down therapies are like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I actually like find really useful in some situations as an adjunct to other techniques. What that means is that our frontal lobe, we use our frontal lobe to help us assess, you know, the logic or illogical nature of our thoughts and we challenge them. And in order to do that, there needs to be the assumption that our frontal lobes are online. And I literally just told everyone here that when you go through trauma, a post-traumatic response is that our frontals are offline. And so that's not going to work as a first-line treatment. It's actually going to feel shaming and uncomfortable because it's not you're not going to be able to do it. And you're going to then start to feel more uncomfortable with why am I trying to do something that I can't do? And so mm-hmm. I think it's a useful tool. However, first, Let's start with bottom up. And what I mean by that is I also mean body up and I also mean limbic up, right? In terms of the order of the brain and those modalities, right? um, Help us understand how to dislodge trauma that's stored in our bodies and how to identify what we're feeling and how that, right? How what we're feeling is uncomfortable and why? And can we stay with it? Can we increase our window of tolerance? Can we stay with a certain emotion, right? Do we know where that emotion exists in our body? And so again, top down and bottom up make a really good combination. (laughs) And I don't think there's true healing from trauma without both modalities. That being said, there is research for cognitive behavioral therapy and trauma. A lot of people don't like CBT at all. I happen to think it's an extraordinary tool at a certain level of healing when someone's ready for it so that they can start to um, challenge the distorted sense of self and the lens through which they're looking um, at themselves and the world and their future that has been elicited through trauma and being a survivor. Before that, I'll utilize modalities like biofeedback and um, internal family systems work. There's something called EMDR, which maybe you've mentioned on here before, but it can be a very, very healing modality. And then of course there's pharmacology. And what I want to say to that is I'm a big proponent of adjunctive psychopharmacological treatment when it's warranted. And what I like to do is, in my practice, is bust stigma around that too. Because sometimes we need medication to help us be able to take the edge off enough to do the work. And the way I like to talk to my clients, my patients, is that 
building the foundation of a house and we were hammering in nails, we wouldn't use our bare hands. We'd use a hammer and the hammer's the drug. It's not like the hammer just hammers by itself. We're still holding it. It's just, it gives us that extra oomph so that the foundation can be set properly. And so there are many pharmacological treatments that have helped those who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, the symptoms of it. And I always, always advise coupling that with therapy because I don't think there's healing with drugs alone. However, if drugs medication is needed, I'm a big proponent of helping someone realize that if they were diagnosed with diabetes, they would take insulin. And this is absolutely no different, right? So like medication for lupus, medication for any autoimmune, heart disease, it is no different than taking a medication for post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you're saying to yourself, but wait, that's a mental health disorder, A, so what? But B, I literally, literally just went through how just like autoimmune impacts mind, body, brain, so does trauma. That's such a good point. All of them are just so spot on. There's so much I want to say about this because the brain is just such a powerful part of the body and people don't realize how powerful it is. And it's interesting too that even in my profession, although as an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker, we learn so much about environment and so much about mental mm. health and how it affects people, how their environment affects people. We really don't learn enough about the brain. I mean, I feel like mm -hmm. that's that it's not studied enough in the mental health profession. Another thing that you know you mentioned is the tra that trauma can be stored in the body, and everything is energy. Even trauma is energy, and that mm -hmm. energy can become stagnant in the body. It's such an important tool to be able to learn mindfulness techniques and to understand. I love how you said that you know you're not necessarily a textbook type of therapist, right? Because not everything can be in the textbook. Yes, we have a DSM, which is kind of like our Bible, but not every trauma is one size fits all. And not every modality to treat trauma is going to be one size fits all. So I love how you have these different techniques. And just like you, I think CBT is great, but it's not for everyone. I've had a lot of clients that have come to me in the past when I did CBT and was like, this is, this is, I don't like this. I don't mm -hmm. like how I'm feeling. And then they would stop doing therapy. And, you know, where I was working at the time, I think that you've had some similar experiences working for a structured organization yes. where yes. sometimes, you know, you have to, <laughs> yeah, you have to, you're told, no, this is how you have to treat. And it's like, ah, you know, yeah, this can be good. And there's a lot of studies, but it doesn't work for everyone. Sometimes you have to start in other places. So I, I love that you kind of look at mm -hmm. every person as something different. I kind of want to switch gears a little bit because sure. I saw a post that you made and you said, stop glorifying the hustle. Let's talk a little bit about burnout. So I'm really curious as what do you mean by let's stop glorifying the hustle? Because for me, I was like, yes, because I that is me all the way. So how does burnout affect the brain? And what are yeah. some of those long term effects? Yeah, I mean, hold on to your seats, everyone, because <laughs> <laughs> there is research that the brain on burnout is looks similar to the brain that's been through trauma. I just want everyone to like take that in for a second. The brain on burnout looks similar to the brain on trauma. And 
I find that mind blowing. And, you know, people are like, well, you're so on your soapbox about, or (laughs) you're so assertive about stop glorifying the hustle and stop glorifying (laughs) pushing past our actual bandwidth. And I feel like I'm so vehement about it because burnout is much more than just an emotional response to long hours or a challenging job, right? And it like literally takes a profound toll on our body and our minds and our brains. And so the results suggest that burnout, right, can impact that frontal cortex, that same frontal cortex I just spoke about with regards to trauma, and that's the area essential to cognitive functioning, that starts to thin. Like when they did research, and I can't quote a specific researcher right now, I'll happily get you know, a citation for you, but there was research that showed that compared to controls, those suffering from burnout were had more pronounced thinning of a part of the prefrontal cortex. And shit, I'm screwed. <laughs> no, you're not. You're plasticity. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're oh. not screwed. You're not screwed. <laughs> um, right. It just means that I think it's time to like take a step back. And I don't know. I think I became a neuropsychologist because there's no more convincing understanding for people than when I tell them it impacts the brain. <laughs> so in my book, mm-hmm. right, I talk about stress, chronic stress, the brain and mindfulness and how that can help the brain. And why I do that is because a brain, brain nerd, neuropsych, but, and also because I can tell someone from here till tomorrow, you know, this will impact your health and this will lower your immunity. And they're like, okay. When I start mentioning brain, (laughs) it's like a whole new level. Mm -hmm. Um, But but really, right, there's an overactivation in the amygdala in burnout, just like with trauma. And so I think neuroimaging is beginning to show that people suffering from burnout. And I actually think there's now, it's now a medical diagnosis burnout, right? I think it's in the ICD-10. Yeah. Um, So people suffering from that, (laughs) their brains look similar to those who've experienced trauma. I'm not surprised because we live in a very high functioning society where we are taught that you should be working 50, 60 hours a week. You got to hustle. And although I respect the hustle, especially if you're trying to get a business up and running, but you can't do that forever, right? It's not sustainable. Everybody has had their periods where they have to work a little harder. They got to grind a little bit because maybe they're doing a project, maybe they're doing something. But when you have that like long these long stretches of just go, 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 go. That's not sustainable. And I'm guilty of it. I I know better. I know about neuroplasticity. I know about the brain. I know about mental health. And I still find myself doing these things. So for me, it takes active awareness. And like, I have to actually sit down and plan, even if you got to sit down and plan it out. And that's me, I got to plan out my self care, I have to plan out like, okay, I am going to stop by 5pm every day. (laughs) But it takes active work to do that. 100%. And here's why I think it's harder 
for you because I think, and I'm not saying anything you didn't say, and I'm clearly not diagnosing mm-hmm. you, but you said your overfunctioning is a stress response, right? And That's so right. I feel like there are literally like deep rooted reasons why you can't stop. So first of all, first and foremost, gentle with self, right? Gentle, mm-hmm. gentle, gentle, right? You come by this so honestly. You're doing this as a way to survive and adapt. And you're realizing, okay, maybe this isn't working for me. Maybe it's not the most efficient, adaptive, and effective tool. So how can I now, you know, reassess? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actively working on it. And to everyone listening, you're not alone. I think that a lot of us go through this. And I I, I, I can literally... Yeah. And even therapists, even people who are in the mental health field, we're human. We still go through all these human experiences. But I think too, just to your point of all these nuggets of wisdom that you've dropped is there is hope because the brain is, it's plastic. It has neuroplasticity. It has this ability to change. And so I could literally talk to you for hours about this. And I am just so grateful that you came on the show. And I, I have this tradition when I end the podcast that um, I like to get insight from everyone because everyone brings such amazing experience. So for you, just looking back at your younger self, what advice would you give to yourself? Yeah. You know, it's such a hard question and I'll tell you why. Because the perfectionist in me wants to, the recovering perfectionist in me wants to give the perfect most poetic, most, you know, brilliant answer. At the end of the day, I'm just like, F it. What I really want to tell my younger self is you are so goddamn lovable. That's really what it boils down to. And I think is going to be or would have been right. Um, a buffer for some of the later traumatic experiences Right. So my advice would be a love letter. You are so lovable, even when you doubt it the most. I love that. And so tell me a little bit about what you're up to now. I know you wrote a book. I want everyone to be able to find you. So where can people find you? What are you doing? Is there any projects that you're working on? Thank you so much. I'm at Dr. Jen Wolken on most all social media outlets. I have a book, Quick Come Book dot com easy meditations to short circuit stress using mindfulness and neuroscience and i'm working on a course um just that's you know linked up with the book and i'm working on other courses online courses one about sharpening your memory as you age and i'm hopefully fingers crossed diving into a second book as my bandwidth Mm -hmm. permits about the psychology of chronic pain and all things, you know, related to that. Thank you for coming on. I'm excited to see this next book when it comes out. I love everything that you're doing. I've been following you for a long time. A lot of your posts are just so insightful. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. I'll link everything for everyone to follow you. And again, thank you for your time and your energy and for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it.